1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. This afternoon we have a guest, Nicholas Clements, or Nick Clements, who along with Henry Reynolds, who was on a few episodes ago, has written a book called Tonga Longata. And I probably got that wrong and Nick will correct me. First... Nations Leader and Tasmanian War Hero, published by New South Press. And before we begin, I'd like to pay my respects past, present and future to the First Nations people of Australia. Nick is an author, he's a keen rock climber, teaches history, philosophy, psychology and is an adjunct researcher at the University of Tasmania where he completed a PhD Now, good afternoon, Nick. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Your book, and I hope I've got that right, Tonga Longata, is that correct?
0: That's how we sat. Uh, The truth is, though, that no one knows for certain.
1: Okay. Could you explain to our audience, first of all, how you would describe what your book is about?
0: Well... It's ultimately a biography of Tonga this incredible but until now unknown warrior. But because the source material on Tonga isn't strong enough to build an entire book around, certainly not in the early phases of his life, it's also a story about his people, his Oyster Bay-Big River alliance in the southeast of Tasmania and their fate and their impact and then there's there's also, uh, I'm not sure if we ever envisaged it this, this way, but it is in some ways a manifesto for commemoration. Uh, we live in a country which is obsessed with war and with commemorating war, but cannot bring itself, like so many other countries have, to acknowledge indigenous war heroes and acknowledge frontier wars as legitimate conflicts that had an important bearing on our nation and ought to be commemorated.
1: Mm. I was going to ask you to begin, and the book is set in Tasmania. It's set in about the very early 1800s to about the 1830s or 1840s, and it does involve what you describe as a war. So I'd like to ask as a very first question, what is a war? A war?
0: is something that we, in the modern world, in the Western world, have a very myopic view about. We have, in our recent past, had the First and Second World Wars, which has skewed our understanding of what constitutes a war. But throughout most of human history, wars have not been on that kind of scale. Wars have been small wars, guerrilla wars, um, protracted guerrilla wars. And that's the kind of war that we see on the frontiers around Australia and the most violent of these wars anywhere in Australia is in Tasmania, the so-called Black War. It's a war that people at the time had absolutely no trouble recognising as a war. From the governor and the colonial office right on down to the settlers everyone refers to it as a war. Uh, Whilst there is this strange quirk about Australian settlement whereby we didn't recognise Indigenous sovereignty and didn't try to make treaties in Australia, something that we did before and after. When I say we, I'm talking about the British Empire. So we didn't do that here. And so technically, we it, it wasn't meant to be a war. Uh, it was meant to, you know, if anything, just a, an, an insurgency of rebels, uh, of citizens gone rogue, which, of course, is, you know, fast but that's that's in theory how it was meant to be but for a brief window during the black war that changed secretary of state for the colonies lord bathurst sent a dispatch to governor arthur at the beginning of his tenure in 1825 saying that these people ought to be treated as if they were uh, enemies of a foreign state so he said yes technically you know we can't acknowledge their sovereignty, but in this case, given given the violence and the resistance they're posing, treat them as if they're a foreign enemy, and that continued until it was knocked on the head um, around the end of the Black War. And that dispatch, when there was so there was a parliamentary inquiry into this in 1837, a really big one that was published about what had happened here in Black in Tasmania, and they excised that that. That dispatch from the records. Uh, it's in the original, but in the published version, it was it was taken out because they realised they'd made a grave error in acknowledging Indigenous sovereignty and acknowledging that this was a legitimate war, not just a, an insurgency.
1: Mm-hmm. With that war theme, one thing that struck me about the book is and this differs in some ways from what I perceive as being other kind of wars, is where There's two sets of belligerents fighting one another and at the end of the conflict, both of them are going to remain where the war happened and both of them are going to consider the place where they remain their home. It seems a very strange concept to, psychological concept, and you can imagine that's, I wonder if that's one of the reasons what your views are on why in Australia indigenous people are in some ways just forgotten. They're just like, they're they're just, they're just here but, kind of accidentally almost because we've taken over. It's Mm. like they're left over after the war, but they've got no place to be refugees because they're already where they are.
0: Yeah, and I think a a big reason for that is our failure to acknowledge their sovereignty. The Treaty of Waitangi, which occurred in New Zealand in 1840, which, as Henry Reynolds shows in his chapters, can be be shown to be a, a result, at least in part, of the resistance of Tonga Longada and his allies in Tasmania um get George Arthur and others write to to England saying you know we we cannot let this happen again we have to have a treaty we have to acknowledge the right the the land rights of these people and they listen and so when it comes to forging a treaty with New Zealand they do that and that's why across the uh, <laughs> across the river over in New Zealand we have a very, very different situation. I'm not saying you know Maori people are disadvantaged in New Zealand. They are, but they have so much more status and so much more power than Aboriginal people do here in Australia and especially in Tasmania.
1: Mm. And if a if a war like the the Black War, as you as it's it's commonly known as, if that was to become something that was commemorated in Australia in the same way that other wars people from this country have fought in. To draw it, bring it up to that level, is that a project now for educating people? How do you you actually get to that status where someone can say, yes, we are now ready to deal with this as part of our national memory?
0: I think it's, I use the analogy to gay marriage. It's one of those things that really only good things can come from from doing it. And uh, the people that will benefit from it will benefit from it. And those that those that have no interest in it won't be won't be uh, disadvantaged. I am uh, privy to some of the, the conversations that are going on between elders, RSL Tasmania, Hobart City Council, Reconciliation Tasmania, and other bodies, even the state government, to a, a memorial that's being planned in the Cenotaph Precinct in Hobart for two years' time. So this is a huge deal. This is going to be a memorial to frontier conflict in Tasmania that will be on par with the ANZAC memorial there. Once it happens here, I believe it's just a matter of time. It'll be a, a domino effect where other states will follow suit.
1: Mm. Another theme I'd like to touch on relates to that is, and it relates to what you've mentioned earlier about treaties, I got the impression in reading the the book that a lot of people in the day thought that they were dealing with a band of lawbreakers rather than that so Aboriginal law wasn't necessarily respected. It was just they weren't following the British law. And there were a few scenes in the book, for example, where some people are hung and there's a surveyor. I forget, his John someone, I think his name is. John a Wedge. And he has this comment where he, he sort of says, oh, "Look, this is just a travesty. That what these people haven't broken any particular law. There's that real conflict between two mm-hmm. systems having to share space. Do you think that's saying um that is something that the Australian nation needs to overcome to actually recognise this as being a genuine conflict where there's not." Where, where there's not a bunch of people who would define the law and can be treated as just these others who don't respect the law that's come to the country.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. My co-author Henry Reynolds, in February this year, published a book called Truth Telling, and it's all about this this lie, this 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 cancerous uh, falsehood at the core of our nation, and that is that. Aboriginal people never had sovereignty. And of course, the first settlers who came here realised almost instantly that that wasn't the case. They were deeply attached to their land. And and this, this lie is still causing us trouble today. Uh, we, we still can't acknowledge Indigenous land rights uh, and acknowledge their sovereignty in any genuine way. Uh, i I don't know what the answer is. Henry would be able to comment better than I. Um, But yeah, it goes. It's all created in an act of parliament in Britain before uh, before before the settlers even arrived in 1786, I believe it was. Um, You know, a handful of white guys, British guys, who have set something in stone that Australian law can now no longer alter. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of stuck with this mistake, and it's infecting us uh, to this day.
1: Mm. With, with that image of the, of the British arriving, when I, uh, one impression I took away from reading the book was that, Nick, you'd put a lot of thought into what it must have been like to have been on the island of Tasmania to have two ships arrive. I think it was 1803. And it's almost the closest thing to an, to aliens arriving on Earth, to the people who live there. It would Could you comment on some of your thoughts on that, what that would have felt like to the, to the local people?
0: It, it's an analogy that people have used for first arrivals of Europeans uh, on Indigenous lands, not just in Australia but elsewhere, because it's something that we today can at least imagine you know, how strange it would be, how profound it would be to have an alien spacecraft land in our midst. But I'm arguing that it's even stranger than that because we at least have the concept aliens. Whether they exist or not, we have the concept. And so if they came, we would say, ah, that's the aliens. Aboriginal people had no notion of foreign nations or foreign peoples. They had recourse only to the spirit world. And so when they first saw, and this is well documented around Australia and in Tasmania, they, they saw them as ancestors returned from the dead. Now of course some, of, some things didn't match up. There was they spoke a strange language. they had strange covered skin and they had strange animals and they came on these floating islands. But every other possible explanatory alternative was stranger than that. So that's what they ran with, and that's an idea that persisted even even into the war and into exile.
1: Mm. And the book progresses where the where some settlers, English settlers, for one of I don't know what you what the, the correct term is, the people who turned up, build homesteads or set up areas out in the bush, and it's then it's almost as though the you sort of see the 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 dynamic change where suddenly the people who've housed themselves out in the bush, they then become sort of haunted, as it were, by the Indigenous people. They're the ones who become really fearful. and it's this, There's this real sense of fear, I think, amongst the, the homesteaders, if that's what they're called. Could you comment on how the, the people who moved into the rural areas felt, some of the fear they had?
0: Yeah, it's, it's something that's often lost in the, the genocide narrative, as I call it, that... The, the impulse among many previous historians to emphasize the victimhood of Aboriginal people, because of course, there's no doubt they were victims. They, They lost nearly everything. They were absolutely victims. And I think maybe the slowness of Australian culture to appreciate that has made them overemphasize this. And as a consequence, we forget how effective they were as warriors. Uh, so effective, in fact, that the people out on the frontier were often paralysed with fear. It was uh, there, there's, a, there's a wonderful case of a woman who was spared, speared several times and she survived, but she spent the rest of her days in an, assailor, an insane asylum. She was so terrified. Uh, uh, you know, there are people, these great stories, because Tasmania is so well-documented, these wonderful stories of, you know, men returning white as ghosts from... from uh, You know, they've been out chopping wood and they've heard something and they've come back running thinking it was the natives. The natives, Aboriginal people, they, they, in the psyche of the white people, took on an aura of spectres, of ghosts, of demons. They were these strange, savage people that lived in the hills and would appear without warning and disappear and couldn't be found again. Uh... No one, of course, could understand how they could live under these conditions. So there was a sort of a superhuman, supernatural element to them, which made them incredibly terrifying. And think about how they—you know—they've got dark skin, they've got bright white teeth, they've got dreadlocks of red clay, they've got scars all over their body because they, they scarify themselves. Uh, with what we call cicatrices—these big rounded scars—are sort of a well, we don't. Have a perfect understanding of what they were used for, but they had uh, obviously some some meaning to them, and so they're, they're very intimidating people.
1: Mm-hmm. And another uh, something else in the, the book you draw out are their skillfulness with weaponry, with spearing it. They seem to be. Um, you might think of a spear as being not that threatening, but when you read this book, they, they the spears are just. Incredibly effective weapons.
0: They are, they, and you have to think an Aboriginal warrior is trained from the time they can walk to use these weapons. They have a um, like Olympic level ability with these weapons, these javelins uh, and waddies as well. Uh, and they're operating in in teams, you know, 20, 20 men uh, operating with incredible harmony. Men that didn't just get formed into one unit six months ago. They've they've been raised together. You know, they know each other's thoughts and how they're going to operate because that's how they hunt together. So they're incredibly effective together. They can make spears nearly anywhere they want. And they, they start, by the end of the war, they're making caches of spears. So they'll bundle these spears up at different points and leave them so that they can make quick getaways, grab new spears and go again. Whereas a musket has you know in the 1820s a musket is a very inefficient unreliable inaccurate weapon it relies on dry powder which if anyone's ever been to tasmania will know is extremely hard to achieve so yeah musket was often more of a burden than anything else uh, although it did have some benefits i mean when it when it hit somebody even even if it was just in the arm or the leg it was generally fatal and uh, did horrific damage to its victims and it had the the mystique about it as well. Aboriginal people quickly worked out how guns functioned, but I don't Mm. think they ever really understood the magic of guns.
1: Mm. Now the book Tonga Longata, could you tell us I wanna talk a little bit about some about the some of the some of the people in the book. Who was Tonga Longata?
0: He was born around 1790 in southeast Tasmania, and so he, he would be coming of age when, you know, like in 1802, when the French explorers arrive on Mariah Island and encounter his his, his band, and have these really interesting, often funny encounters. Where you know they, they can't work out why there's no women in these, these groups. So they're, they're going up to the young cabin mm-hmm. boys and fondling them and trying to work out where are the women and laughing at the stupidity of these white fellows. Uh, and that's, it's all it's bordering on comical. And then of course they, they go away, they sail away. All the explorers did. But then the following year, the British come and settle at Risdon. And then the year after that, 1804, they have this really dark encounter where the carronade is fired and uh, at a large mass of Aboriginal people uh, who appear to have been attacking um, in response to an earlier volley of of muskets. And so it puts the fear into both sides. uh, And there's not a lot of contact for the following 20 years after that, but there's a clear image in both sides' minds that... uh, there is, these are dangerous people, and we ought to try to stay out of each other's way. And that's something that Tonga really seems to try to do. But there comes a point in the early 1820s that there's this incredible flood of, of settlement after the Napoleonic Wars end of sheep and cattle and convicts, and they're all pouring up the river valleys of southeast Tasmania, which is a, the most you know, densely settled area of Tasmania. Right into the heart of their country, and it's no longer an option to, you know, just avoid these people. Mm. Uh, and it starts off initially because you've got a 12 to 1 gender ratio on the frontier in white society. So you can't, uh, and it's not surprising that some of these men, well, there's lots of accounts of them sleeping with each other, sleeping with animals. These are young, mostly young convicts, but some of them take to preying on Aboriginal women and girls. Naturally, this is a patriarchal society, so the Aboriginal people start retaliating, but they try to be targeted, and it's in their society, retribution is very targeted. So they do that initially, but there's no way to de-escalate things. And so by 1827, 1828, it's all out war. And by this stage, Tonga Longata, his 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 band that he grew up with is basically decimated, uh, and he has emerged as the overall leader of the Oyster Bay people, uh, which was initially probably up to twenty bands, and uh, but now he's now it's operating in several bands, and he seems to be the one holding it all together, and in, despite the fact that their numbers are diminishing year after year they are becoming more and more effective. They're killing more and more people. They're making more and more attacks every year, which really speaks to his leadership. Um, but he's got one main ally. So the equivalent of him for his na- the neighbouring nation, the, the big river nation, is a man named Montpellier. Uh, that nation is slightly smaller. It's based in central Tasmania, central plateau, and in the river valleys on the escarpment to the south of the plateau. They are the same language group, and so they're sort of natural, natural allies. And by the end of the war, they're operating almost in tandem, uh, almost uh, as one people.
1: Yes, the book brings out the. I want to ask you about that. The in the end, there are there is a sort of alliance with the, the Big River Nation and the Oyster Bay Nation, and I think there were some other nations on Briny Island might have had one down that that down that way. I'm not sure. Um, but how did, between themselves, were they they were they considered themselves as neighbouring states, really, as neighbouring nations, and, then, and they had to have their own customs and diplomacy and they could be at war with one another if, from time to time? How did, how did the Aboriginal society itself function before the Europeans arrived? Do we know much about that?
0: Not as much as we'd like to. So there's a fair bit of inference and conjecture when it comes to this, uh, the sources are not as good as we'd want, and they and they sometimes contradict each other. Uh, but most scholars tend to agree that they that the, the main unit of society was the band, so you know, anywhere from thirty to eighty individuals, and they these bands had a sort of agglomeration. Uh, Alliances with with other neighbouring bands, mm. and this, the, but these weren't always set in stone. They, they might they might change over time. Bands might go to war with each other because of some some disagreement, and then they might fuse together with another band, an ally against them. It's 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 clearly something that's in flux, and that flux is intensified by settlement and the disruption of traditional society. So. You would think that they would be more effective if they laid aside their traditional squabbles and and focused their energy on on resisting the Europeans, but that's not what happened. Into um, inter tribal warfare continued right up until the second last year of the war. Mm.
1: And another um, person also so with the bands is that the word when your book you used the word. I'm not going to say it incorrectly, but Port, Port, Port Army. Army. Are they, are they Port Armies? Yeah, Port Army.
0: Yeah, the band. So they they are the people that sort of just just on the mainland side of Mariah Island and Mariah Island there. So that's, that seems to have been where their, their homeland was. But all of these people were very mobile. so And we don't really understand where, when they moved, and, and what exactly their relationship and obligations were to their country. There's little snippets here and there, but it's that's the, the area of this history that I'm least confident about.
1: Right, okay. In in The, the story also has a contrast between Tonga Longata and another person called Kikatopla.
0: Kikotopla, yeah. Can
1: you so, talk about him?
0: Yeah, he's... A really interesting guy. I'd love to know how it was that he ended up uh, in Hobart in 1819. He's about 10 years younger than Tonga of the same band. And somehow he ends up, uh, it seems that he's he's landed himself in this, na- uh, what is it called? The uh, Establishment for the Native People or something. It's It's a little... It's a little rented room to provide medical assistance with this drunk old surgeon. And during his stay there, he, he becomes ingratiated with Dr. Birch, mm. who is a very high-profile settler. He's a good friend of the governor's. And uh, Birch takes him into his, his home. As he, you know, the, the kid's probably about 18 years old at this stage. Takes him into his home, christens him after himself, Tom Tom Birch, and he lives with them for three and a bit years. Uh, you know, looks after the kids, and Thomas Birch dies a couple of years later. Uh, but he remains close with his widow Sarah, who remarries this awful fella. Uh, and Sarah would go on to get him out of quite a few pickles in the years to come because he's he's at once addicted to European foods and, and alcohol and tobacco and sort of can't get himself off that. But he's also uh, he also seems frustrated with European society and attracted to his traditional life. And so at various points he goes back out and, and and you know contributes to the resistance. In some cases it seems as a leader as well. But after a couple of back and forths he eventually He's offered by the governor, presumably because Sarah Birch um, put, had a hand in it. He's, he's, he's offered to go free again in 1827 or 1828, I can't remember. But he, he refuses to leave the prison. Uh, he says, mm. no, I, I, I'm done That's with right. this. And, uh, and so they attach him as a guide to the roving parties. And this is a new concept because, uh, of course, they, they can't suppress these people, Tonga and his allies, they just can't stop him. Unlike unlike uh, other other Indigenous peoples that the British had encountered, they can't burn their villages or raise their crops or anything like that. They're just so mobile, you, you can't take take them out in the traditional ways. And so they try all these different measures, and the roving parties is one of them. A bunch generally headed by a settler. There are military roving parties as well, but the ones we know the most about, they're headed by by settlers, they've got a few convicts, they've got some Aboriginal guides generally, and they go out trying to find them and they occasionally have some success. But for the most part, and Kikata Pola is exemplary of this, they, they tend to lead them away from Aboriginal people and uh, aren't very successful at all.
1: Mm. With the the Black War itself. So Tonga Longada, as you say, is a very successful fighter. The book also has a certain honesty about it, which you've mentioned earlier, that war has blood, it has death, it has psychological injury. What actually happened? What could you describe to the listeners some of the typical or some of the main conflicts of this battle? What What actually uh, uh, took place?
0: So the conflict has this really bizarre circadian rhythm. Aborigines never once attacked at night. They are afraid of the evil spirits that lurk in the dark, and so they'll only move at night in extremis, um, and or if there's a, you know, a really bright full moon or something. So they're extremely vulnerable at night, and Europeans quickly catch on to this. They start looking for the glow of a fire at dusk, and they'll. They'll get together with a posse of armed men and they'll, they'll surround the camp and often attack at dawn. This is something. Most of the Aboriginal people who die violently during the war die in these these ambushes. Uh, for the average band, they could expect to be ambushed, you know, two or three times a year. I imagine it was pretty common. But as soon as the sun comes up, the tables of vulnerability turn, and Europeans spend their days terrified. Aborigines. Would often use reconnaissance. Uh, they would use uh, decoys, a whole range of sophisticated tactics that Europeans just didn't have. Um, they uh, they would be on they'd be on their victims before they knew it in most cases. And they were they didn't hold back. Remarkably, despite the fact that colonists systematically Abducted, raped, and murdered Aboriginal women and girls. There's never a single instance in which Aboriginal people did that. Mm. Uh, they also they speared thousands of sheep and cattle, but they never once ate them. Now, again, I think that it helps to understand that they didn't see these people as humans in the traditional sense. You know, would you sleep with a ghost? Would you would you eat 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 the uh, the flesh of a spirit? Um, it it's probably probably explains why they didn't. But they didn't hold back when it came to killing white men. Uh, they would often torture them. Um, they'd leave them to bleed out slowly, pluck out their eyes, rip off their fingers. They wanted to make these bastards pay. And you can understand, given what they, they had suffered, And they held out, with only one exception, they injured a a white woman in 1824. They didn't even touch another white woman until late 1828. And then almost by agreement, everywhere they start killing women and girls. And it all starts with this one attack in, I think, October 1828 on on the Goff family, um, where they kill... uh, they, They kill... Uh, I forget her name, um, Mrs. Gough, their neighbour, Anne Geary, uh, and one of their daughters, Alicia Gough, and then they wound one of the other little girls. And uh, we don't know that this was Tonga Longa. There's about a 50-50 chance, based on on my research, that it was. But undoubtedly, he was involved in killing women and girls. And this has actually been something, I'm not on social media, but uh, I have been informed that, Uh, one of the big objections to calling him a war hero is that he was involved in the killing of of women and children. And, I mean, I don't even know where to start with that. Uh, Again, I think it it speaks to how myopic people are in their understanding of what is a hero, what is a war. Uh, What would they do under those conditions? They'd held out harming women and children for that long, uh, but... They were they were the enemy. They were the invader. Uh, you know, British bombers uh, and Australia, Australian bombers uh, get medals for leveling German cities, killing thousands and thousands of civilians. Mm. We, yeah, it's it's it makes no sense in my opinion. Uh, but it was a bloody. It was a really really bloody, terrifying war. I mean, we we. And this is why I, I go into a lot of detail about what it was actually like on the ground. Yeah. All my research through my PhD has been not about the machinations of government or anything like that. It's been about what is it actually like on the frontier? What is the yeah. weather like? What is the topography like? Um, what does what, what does the wind factor into this? Um, uh, ha, ha, what, what do, how cold does it have to be? before you light a fire, even when you know you're going to get seen. Um, how long does it take to load a musket when you're shitting yourself? Now, all, all these sorts of things haven't really, in my opinion, been taken well into consideration by by a lot of previous historians. It's all done in the abstract. It's always looked at in, in terms of numbers and, and government government orders and so forth. On the frontier, it's really messy.
1: Mm. So... That, those sections of the book uh they're exciting and they they have they have a, a a real flow. It reminds me a lot of that movie Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they're just being pursued, pursued, pursued. I don't know if you've seen the film, but they're just being pursued for day after day and it just gets in the head of the viewer. And some of the and I ask like you to comment on this. So you, you paint these scenes where it's winter, they're heading up into the big river country where it gets cold if it's not cold already in the lower country they as you said they can't have having a fire on is like they need it but they can't have it they're being chased their women are being taken there's injuries how how is life for and this isn't just for a day this is for, for for seasons how how did they even psychologically cope how did it all how did they survive
0: this is the greatest mystery to me. Yeah, when I when you take stock of everything that happened to Tonga Longora, just as a, just as one example, it I, I would be in the fetal position. Most of us would be catatonic uh, had we experienced half of what he experienced. Yeah, the, most of them they've, they've they've adopted using dogs to keep warm in, in the frigid night air without the fires. Um, but dogs carry these this canine scabies, which is a horrific skin infection, and nearly all of them have it um, during the war. And their skin blisters and bleeds and itches ferociously all the time. So they're cold, they're itchy, they're listening out to all the, the nocturnal sounds of a night. Anyone who's camped out in the Tasmanian bush just comes alive with with possums and and scurrying creatures and birds and it it just must have been so unnerving to 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 always be on on the watch for this and by the end they're setting up their campsites in really sophisticated ways and having watches you know men would do shifts watching um, which is actually quite successful but man there was just just relentless you know all the things that made life worth living the ceremonies, the, the swimming, the laughing, the get togethers, you know, the, the flirting, all that stuff, all the fun stuff that we still today love and enjoy was gone. It had just been sucked out mm. of their world by this invasion. And now they're, they're just surviving. But they're doing it in, they, they found it safer to steal their food than to hunt it in the air. It wasn't so much that, I mean, there had been uh, European hunting had taken a toll on on kangaroos particularly, but uh, they could still hunt. Um, the problem was that there were too many white men now, and hunting during the day with dogs was just too risky. So they rarely did it, and instead they would steal more transportable food, flour and sugar and uh, and things like that. And uh, yeah, so by the end the 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 kill rate levels off, but the the instances of plunder goes sky high. Mm. I mean just in just in eighteen thirty they make and this is just Tonga those people make over two hundred attacks. Now to get to sort of get your bearings with that figure doesn't sound like a huge amount. You think this is these are just by this stage maybe a few hundred. Um by the end of 1830, I estimate their their, figure, their numbers to be between 50 and 100 um, West of Bay, Big River Nations. That's all that's left. So you're dealing with a, a max a few hundred people that are making these attacks. And by World War II per capita, the number of white Tasmanians killed in World War II is less. It's, it's half of the number per capita killed by... Tonga Longata and his allies in the Black War. Everybody right. knows somebody who's out there who's becoming a victim. It's really close to home. And unlike those conflicts where you, you're reading the reports from overseas, this is happening in your own backyard.
1: Mm. So does that explain why when the the book opened and Henry Reynolds has the chapter that's that is is when there's a, a like a, a, a treaty or a, a just a peace accords resolve between the governor and Tonga Longata and his and the 120 odd surviving people was and it seems to have been a big day in Hobart Hobart town it was called then mm. is that the reason why because there was actually it was going to end it was actually relief amongst the everyone
0: immense relief immense relief let, I mean let, let me step you back a little bit uh, by 1830 uh, by September you know, they're, they're just making so many attacks. The, the, the frontier is in paralysis. They are just terrified. The governor, who is actually quite humane when it comes to Aborigines, he's got a real soft spot. He, he says ad nauseam, you know, this is our fault. Um, they're just doing what any, any human being would do. But he's under so much pressure, and his job is, admittedly, to keep the settlement safe. So under pressure and with... Nothing else seeming to work. He initiates the Black Line, which is to this day Australia's largest ever domestic military offensive. 2,200 soldiers, settlers and convicts in this massive seven-week operation, a vast human wave uh, constricting week after week around southeast Tasmania, tonga country, trying to capture him. Uh, or Well, many of the men were trying to kill him, but the official line was they were trying to capture him to put an end to the violence. But he just slips on through, and he kills. They do. They do end up losing two um, in this in this in an ambush during this period. Uh, but they mm. kill five and, and wound seven, I think, in that same period. So they, they escape the line. But as they're as they're getting away, they run into these Sawyer's, who uh, who run away, and but it so often happens, they came back. And Tonga tells us in his own words years later in exile, how it was a moonlit night and they came back with many men and many guns and they, they opened fire uh, from all sides. Two men are killed. Three women are killed. They're bashed on the head and thrown in the fire. Tonga is shot through the arm. Uh, But they all make off into the night and, uh, uh, but he doesn't get far, and, and and in that in the in the night, they his comrades have to operate on him, and they slice off what's left of his arm just below the elbow, and they they, they use because we've got these post mortem reports that tell about the operation, and they, they obviously use something something rough like a like a stone, like a dolerite stone or something, to grind down that splintered bone, and and then they cauterise the wound in the fire. So just a just a horrific, horrific operation to be done without anesthetic. And then and then he's still got about a week to travel to get up onto the plateau, but he somehow survives. He's the only only known survivor of an amputation in that we know of in Aboriginal Tasmania. So they would have tried this many times, but uh, the survival rate would have been, you know, very, very low. Nevertheless, he makes it and as he's recuperating him and his wife, Rym uh conceive a child. And, uh, but the war, the resistance, the, the air has gone out of the resistance. They only make about a quarter of the 57 attacks. I think they make that year, 1831. So it's all winding down and, uh, and they decide to winter on the plateau, which is just, I mean, this is a, this is one of the most frigid Alpine environments in Australia. Uh, and, they, and they, they manage to survive up there. I don't know, they may, probably lost some, but they uh, dreamt survives with child. And, and later that year, she, she gives birth uh, in October or November. And they're still up on the plateau when they're met by George Augustus Robinson, this missionary, this religious zealot with nine Aboriginal envoys. And Robinson, on behalf of the, with the authority of the government, negotiates terms with them. Robinson tells us in his diaries what, what terms he's offering. He's saying, if you lay down your weapons, then as soon as things have calmed down, we will find a European envoy who will, who will be like a protector and you will be able to again return to your country and hunt as you always have done uh, with this protector. Uh, but you need to come with me now. And so Tonga agrees. Robinson gives him this great cloak. And a week later, they walk into Hobart. Uh, all of Hobart comes out, lines the streets cheering in awe. It was only a few weeks earlier, a Hobart paper had suggested there must be a thousand of them still up in the hills because they're still committing attacks. You know, they're, they're still very dangerous. But no, it was 26 of them. Nine women, 16 men, and this one little infant child. And they're allowed to carry their spears, and they walk down Elizabeth Street, to the astonishment of everyone in Hobart Town, to Government House, where they're invited in, and they have this meeting that conveniently (laughs) was never recorded. Arthur recorded everything, but he didn't record this. Uh, No doubt... Because, and we find out later from, you know, things he's written that he clearly promised them that they could return uh, if they would just temporarily leave the island. And uh, 10 days later they do, they get on a boat and they've never been on a ship before. And so they're seasick, they're highly distressed, they're vomiting and, and there's two really interesting accounts of the voyage. And they've got these bags of their ancestors' bones, and they're shaking them at the at the bulkhead as they uh, as they pass their homeland on the east coast of Tasmania, uh, and probably because they're so seasick, Dreamtimea is going to struggle to breastfeed. Uh, it's, you know, everyone's unwell, and as they dock on Flinders Island, this child dies, and there's this horrific scene. And, you know, wailing, and um, the officers there insist that the child be buried like a European. Uh, so Drimtimitra tricks them. She cuts off the child's head and wraps it in a thick blanket so they can't tell and, and buries it that way. But they burn off the flesh of this skull, and between Drimtimitra and tongalongata they wear it around their necks for the next five and a half years as an amulet. And any time mm-hmm. anyone's sick or injured at the, at the settlement, they come for the skull and they strap it to the to the sore part of their body. Uh, so he's quite a sight in exile. He, you know, lots of people comment on the, you know, the, he's very tall. this a big, tall chief with one arm and a skull around his neck. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't just the way he looked. He was everyone who met him was impressed by him. He was an intelligent, charismatic man.
1: Yeah, he was um when you tell it like that the, the end of the the end you just think all these these years of effort and then to be sent off to, to Flinders Island and I think you, in, you, you tell how in the book there are some points on the island where they can see back to the mainland of Tasmania and they, they there's fires burning on one side or the other and it just, just seems heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, so I think the one you're talking about is Robinson when he's on the northeast coast trying to collect up the last survivors from the northeast, which is not Tongolongus to people, they were traditional enemies, but uh, he he has this there's this scene where the women so in addition to the settlers uh, sorry the, the convicts in particular stealing the women and girls, there are these sealers in Bass Strait, these these rogue men. Uh, really, really savage men uh, who systematically abduct women and girls and take them and enslave them on the islands of Bass Strait as sex slaves and as, as labour. And these women, because smoke signals are how, how Aboriginal people communicate over a distance and they're, they're very good at it. And so you've got men on the mainland making signals that are being returned by the women and the men are bawling their eyes out and you know, it, Robinson is just like, oh man, this is this is the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen. You know, these great warriors have lost their daughters and their wives and their mothers, and mm. um, and it, it, around about the same time, he takes a census of the greater northeast uh, and east coast of Tasmania, and there are seventy two people left named, three women that have just been wow. completely. Bereft of women due to the voracious, or should I say, rapacious appetites of white
1: men. Yeah. Man, um, and as a historian, with the when I was re, one one thing when I was working through this book was it's sometimes it's hard to realise that this isn't just a great story. You shouldn't really think of it as just this. Oh, how lucky we've got this now. We've got this great history. We can read this. is like actually exciting. This is better than a novel. But it's how, how do you, it's almost like you've still got to actually work, realize that this is actually, this happened, which mm. is, um, makes it even more real in a way. And as a historian, how did you put the record together? How did you actually come to put this these pieces together to deliver this book?
0: We've got some really great sources for Tasmania. So Tasmania is very well documented at the official level, so government records. It has a very, very active press environment, so there's you know, half a dozen newspapers by the end of the war in Launceston and Hobart. There is the records of the French explorers, so there's several French expeditions that come to Southeast Tasmania and observe Aboriginal people sometimes for weeks on end in Tongalongata's country uh, and his near neighbours before Europeans have arrived, so you, you get a, a really interesting picture ethnographically. But above all, George Augustus Robinson, who I mentioned earlier, spends almost ten years living with these people, and he keeps a voluminous journal. He's, he's obsessive. He's such an interesting guy. You know, he's very easy to hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would have he would have been an awful man to meet. Uh, he was pretentious and Arrogant, and but also he also would have been considered a bleeding heart lefty by today's standards. He was he was sympathetic with Aboriginal people to a point that made him a laughingstock to to contemporaries. And he he wrote about them and the conversations he had with them. You know, we, the reason why this book was even possible was because of what he wrote about the conversations he had with Tongalungara.
1: Yeah, so mm, oh, well, that's that's. At least he did that much.
0: Mm. But I will say that uh, writing, there's a couple of chapters there that were really hard to write because I, I had to draw, dr- drag a very, very wide archival net to get enough material to to give a solid foundation to what I was saying. And when it comes to Tonga Longata's involvement, I was quite speculative in that early part of the war. Uh, you know, i I went to great lengths. For instance, I I documented every single instance of violence in Tasmania, Uh, you know, thousands, well over a thousand instances of violence, and every detail, every reference, where it happened. So I'm plotting it all in a sort of a a four-dimensional map so that I get a picture of where people are moving, And, and that's one thing that I can then match against the individual reports to try and pull together a picture of what happened, but it's an imperfect picture.
1: Mm. No. Well, well. Thank you for your time. Nick, we have to to, to wrap it up, but um, that's um the um, it's a great it's, it is a great book. I think it's something that any person who has any interest at all in Australia would will benefit from. The work that's gone into it is obvious. Um, I think you, should, personally, I think you should be very proud of it. I'm sure that you are, and I've heard it's it's actually going very well as well for you, which is good. Um,
0: yeah, can I just finish with with one thing? Yeah. Uh, to becomes the overall leader on Fender's Island, and this is recognised by the officials. Uh, and in 1835, uh, he's renamed King William after the reigning monarch of England. and in this this really bizarre coincidence, he dies on the exact same day as the king in England in Windsor Castle, on the other side of the world. And so, so you've got this one you know, dying in the Latin a lavish castle, and the other on a on a you know a drafty hut on a, on a sort of a, an accursed island full of sickness and. And, uh, and despair and yet uh yeah one you know one devotes his life to dispossessing indigenous people and one devoted his to resisting it and the funeral was absolutely massive the biggest ever held at the settlement and uh, I think anyone who witnessed it would be aghast to know that today in 2021 Tonga we know exactly where he's buried. But his grave and the grave, many of the other heroes of the Black War, is marked by nothing more uh, elaborate than thistles.
1: Wow. That's amazing. It's, um, well, it's
0: tragic. It's tragic and it needs yeah. to change. We, it do, does. we, we, We need a generation of school kids to grow up knowing, that, uh, thinking about this man in the same way we think about Teddy Sheehan or Simpson and his donkey, you know, this is this is a hero who 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 died on this country for this country,
1: you know. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you you told that end bit there because as I said earlier, I didn't want to. I, I, you can spoil your own book, but that when you when you read it, it's just so powerful that end that end scene after this whole journey. It's just you just got to read it. Really, it's, mm. it's incredible. Um, well, thank you very much, Nicholas, for your time. What um plans do you have what's your next some of your next pieces of work
0: (laughs) no this is me done this is a mic drop for me uh i i only sort of pulled the boots back on when the opportunity came up to write with henry who is was my phd advisor and a a dear friend and a a mentor like someone i uh, he's in my opinion undoubtedly the greatest historian in australia and I just couldn't turn down that opportunity. And we, we both knew that this story still had to be told and and we, we were the right people to tell it. So I I did that, but I've got young children and uh, writing a book like this requires a kind of maniacal commitment uh, that I'm no longer willing to to give. I've, I've told my stories and... I hope, they
1: make a, I hope they make a difference, but that's it for me. Oh, well, that's noble in itself. Good on you, your kids. We will, will appreciate that, I'm sure. I hope so. Yeah, well, thank you, Nicholas. Thanks for your time. And Nicholas Clements, Henry Reynolds have written Tonga Longata, First Nations leader, Tasmanian war hero. It's out from New South Books. Wonderful cover, some great pictures in it too. Thanks again, Nick.
0: Pleasure.